Jesus is teaching what is called classically as the Beatitudes, and we've been in, I think we're on number five probably today, but we would, uh, again, once again, let's read the passage together. Matthew chapter five, we'll be getting, reading at verse one and through verse 12. Matthew chapter five, beginning now at verse one. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. May God add a special blessing to reading of his word, and let's just pause for prayer prior to our study this afternoon. Father God, once again, we come in to your presence and thanking you for allowing us to be with you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you intended before the foundation of the world to design a plan for salvation that included Jesus Christ to die for us. Thank you, Father, that it was good enough, that it was sufficient because you rose, he, he Jesus Christ, rose from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for proving that it was satisfactory. Thank you for never changing. You were the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, now as we engage in the scriptures and the word of God, as we look at this passage that Jesus gave on the side of a mountain many, many years ago, how vivid it was then and needs to be listened and applied now as well. We would ask that your spirit would be our sole teacher today, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be here. He'd be working in a live and active way, using the word of God to instill your truths within us. Thank you for those that have come out today, Father. We would ask especially for those that you would bless them and their families as they've engaged in worship and praise and learning more about you. Relationally, Father, at the end of this day, this session, Father, that we could say that we've never been closer to Jesus than now. Thank you for what you're going to do because you're worthy of our praise for, it's our, for our good and your glory. We'll thank you for what you're going to accomplish now in these moments before us. And with thanksgiving, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this uh, inaugural address, if you will, as Jesus has been uh, going around the country, he's been healing those that are sick. He's been ministering to those that need stuff. And we're the same, aren't we? We need stuff. And I'm not talking about material things. I'm just talking about things in our lives. We need to be fixed. And our world today needs more fixing than I've ever seen anything ever need fixing. Correct? I mean, there's places that's gone crazy and wild. You just think of it, it's not okay to go to church, but it's okay to burn a church. It's not okay to shop, but it's okay to loot and to rob a shop. We've lost our minds. But actually... God speaks of that in Romans chapter 1. We'll be, we'll be going there kind of in the midst of what we're doing today because really literally we are in a place that God predicted would happen when we threw truth out the door. We should not be surprised. And thankfully God is with open arms 
is, is asking us to return to him. He wants that all would come to his saving grace. And Jesus sat on this mountainside over 2,000 years ago, and he was speaking truths that were so weird. That wasn't a word that you'll find in the scriptures, but literally would have totally blown away, which he did, all of those that were caught up in religious activities, all of those who had been caught up in the, the, the zest and the zeal for trying to conquer and to diminish Roman control, and those that were probably not doing very well economically as well because the Romans were really good at taxing. They taxed and taxed and taxed. And so here you have people that have just had a taste of who Jesus is. And now he's going to explain to them how to be happy. <laughs> and he says everything wrong. If you were listening, if you thought you knew what he would say, and today would be the same way. If Jesus was here, and we'd probably want a bigger place for him to be because I think we'd have a bigger gathering than you can imagine. Because if you said, Jesus Christ is going to teach us today about how to be happy. Man, there'd be a lot of people come, wouldn't there? I would think. And yet today we've even become so absent from truth, I'm not sure how many in the United States really even know who Jesus is. Isn't that sad? We've lost our way. But I'd be one. I would want to go. I would want to see what Jesus says and how to be happy. And that's what his job was right here. And he, he sits on the mountainside, and you can just tell, you can feel from the scriptures, a multitude, massive amount of people that are just spread out before him. And he unloads with these how to be happies. <laughs> how to be happies. And it must have been just weird and eerie to think that he first of all starts out that blessed are those that are poor in spirit or that are humble. Did he get the wrong speech? Is this, who's he talking to? And he follows that up with saying, blessed are those that are mourn over their sin. Who is this guy? And then he follows up and saying, blessed are those that are meek. And that's a word we don't even use anymore. For them, it would have meant, it does to us as well today, that's power under control. Doing what would be best for other people. Even though you have the power to do something else or above and beyond in control for your own selfish interests, no, you do what's best for that other person. Who does that? And then he said, blessed are those that thirst after righteousness. <laughs> what, what, do you, what, what do you mean thirst for righteousness? Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, you know, today I'm really thirsting for righteousness. <laughs> That's weird. No, but it's exactly the way to be happy. That's what's really cool. These things are exactly what we need today. And if you have those first four, and they're really coming for you, and you're coming for them, guess what? Then it's easy to be merciful. Because that builds on top of what a, a humble heart, a humble a humility is such a perfect place for you to meet God. If you come at him with pride, which the Pharisees were really good at. I mean, if you, if you said Pharisees in the dictionary, it would equal pride. They just came together. They were so smack dab full of themselves. It was amazing. And that's what these people... Well, Jesus is saying the very opposite of what we're being told by our religious leaders. Ah, exactly. Remember the one that was the forerunner of Jesus Christ? What was his name? John the Baptist. I love him. He was so good in so many ways. He didn't have a lot of Facebook accounts. He didn't have a lot of television reviews. He didn't have a lot of advertising campaigns. 
But he was so on the spot because he said this. He says, I must decrease, and he, Jesus, must increase. When we live our lives that way, wow, the world can be turned upside down. Humility is a wonderful, wonderful thing, and it's a gift from God. And when we approach God that way, things will change in our lives first. Because Jesus was all about the inside. You take a look at every one of these things that he's asking you are telling us to be happy. How you, It's all about our inside. Nothing to do with externals because the external takes care of itself if we got the inside right. And that's where Jesus always wanted to start. It was amazing how he knew this. I'm thinking of Nicodemus, right? I'm probably jumping. These notes I have, uh, they're sometimes useful, but maybe not today. But let's go to John chapter 3. And I want you to see how he, Jesus, knows right where Nicodemus is before Nicodemus even asks a question. John chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. And it describes for us who Nicodemus is. It says in verse 1, chapter 3 of John, there was a man of the Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees, well, tell me what you know about them. Let's, let's just stop there for a second. Because Jesus has these. These are in the audience. They've actually came to John. If you go back to John the Baptist, they were there. It's interesting. They were at the cusp or the very edge of religiosity. I mean, they were the leaders. They were the thing. And John's message was what? What was John's message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why would a Pharisee come to listen to that? Because they're just as empty as someone else that doesn't know Jesus. In fact, most of the time, those are the most prideful, the most arrogant, are literally inside aching and crying for some way to be forgiven. And they covered up. There's that, that cover-up, if you will, that externalism, externalism. But John said the very same thing. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isn't that great to know? I mean, there's people coming in droves because they wanted to know the truth. Now, today, I, I'm going to digress. There's going to be different times today we're going to digress. See, these people in this context, in the time when Jesus was sitting on that mountainside, wanted to know the truth. Because there's several places, and we're going we're gonna to do, I am going to talk about Nicodemus. Don't let me forget. Paul, that's your job. Don't let me forget to talk about Nicodemus. Because today, there are people that literally don't want to know the truth. I just read a statistic. I was, 91%, through a Gallup poll, 91% of our teenagers today do not believe in absolute truth. That is, truth for all people in all times. Did you hear me correctly? 91% of our teenagers do not believe in absolute truth. They say it depends on the situation. It's relative. Where did they get that from? From their parents or parent. Because we've lost the framework of what God designed to make our planet work really well. We're made up of a lot of things. One is conscience. It's not the law, but it's a trigger. You do something wrong and there's the, you have five senses, hearing, smell, taste, help me, touch, must be one more, sight, okay? But there's one more. There's a sense of right and wrong. And it's built within us. And when you do something wrong, just a little child, I remember when I did, I didn't even know it was wrong, but I knew it was wrong, right? What do I do with that? Well, conscience is one that we've, over a period of time, have literally destroyed and made it unknown. Look at our drug use in the United States today, especially young, young people. It's out, it's out of control. 
It's completely maddeningly out of control. Alcohol abuse, drugs, whatever it is. And see, when you start to, you could decrease what pain does, and pain is a wonderful thing. One of the worst things could be if you don't listen to pain. Our conscience can sometimes painfully make us aware of something we're doing very wrong. So we usually, as a people, get rid of that. Or we, the second way is to lie to our conscience. We lie to our conscience. We say untruth that we pick up and we believe that, and then all of a sudden, guess what happens? Our thinking changes. We start to listen to what we want to believe, and if there's anything left, we'll just throw some painkiller on that. That's what's happened to our consciences in America. That's why when Black Lives Matter, they don't talk about the abortions of a thousand black babies a day. No, God says all lives matter. He didn't change his mind. What's happened to us? That's where it starts. The family is another God-given institution that literally we have busted up badly. Busted up badly. And that's how God works. That's how he gives stability. That's how he gives the sense of continuity and foundational techniques and procedures and principles to that young family that's growing up and they become young men and young women that become married and I don't even know where to start. And there are churches. And I've already said it's easier to burn one than it is to go to one. And government. The anarchy that's taken our country by... It, it, it's, it's wild. It's beyond imagination. I think right now pops in my mind. Let us go to Romans chapter 1. It has nothing to do ultimately with where we're at other than to be pure in heart literally allows us still to see the importance of God's truth. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and there's three places that God gives up or gives over when we disobey or discount or deny truth. Romans chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 21. Actually, verse 20, it's a great place to start. Just thinking of how creation speaks to us and cause and effect. You know, it's like if you have a car, you know, if you don't put any gas into it, it's going to stop running. But it's a wise conclusion that if I put gas in the tank, it will continue to run. Correct? It's the same thing when you look at the world around you. It's magnificent, isn't it? It's crazy. Look at the mountains and all of the grandeur. And to think that there's not a designer is ridiculous. So there's things that creation literally just speak to us. I remember just as a young child, I'd lie uh, on the cool of the, of the lawn grass, looking up at night at the stars, and amazed, awe, just in awe of how majestic God must be. And that's exactly what they do. They speak of his majesty. Let's go to Romans chapter 1 again, as, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world, verse 20 of chapter 1, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise... They became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now watch. There's three here. Now we'll find in verse 24, 26, and 28 where it says literally this. this is one of the these are the scariest words that I can think of. God gave them over. God gave them up. 
I don't want God to give up on me. I want, I want God to be in my life. But because they rejected truth, because they threw it to the curb and they wanted nothing more to do with God, this are three, these are three things that God has given. Verse 24, wherefore, because of that, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You go back to the 60s and there was a lot of things that started to be said. Just do our own thing. It doesn't matter what you do, just as long as you are happy, just as long as it feels good. And that sexual revolution just took off. It's one of the first things you find when people leave God's truth behind. And the second one is found in verse 26. And for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. And you'll read in verse 26 and 27, the sense of the turning them over to homosexuality. Our country is plagued by it. Our world is plagued by it. Why? Because literally they've suppressed the truth and they've thrown it aside to the curb. God just gives them up. But there's one more that's even more scary to me. This one in verse 28. Whoops, I just, I went back to Matthew. Don't leave. Go right back to Romans. I'll be there in a second. And let's look at verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. I, I, I read this over and over and over again on different posts and things. There's no God. Who said he raised from the dead? All of those things that have been suppressed now for generations, literally generations now, We've lost the sight of, let alone the fact of. <laughs> That's scary to me. But watch this. This is where we are in our nation today. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And it goes on to list a lot of things. But literally, when God gives you up to a reprobate mind, you cannot think properly. Now, that's why... Let's go to Isaiah chapter 5. This is kind of like a sermon in a sermon. I don't know what this is about, but we're going, aren't we? Isaiah chapter 5. And let's look at something that this is, if this is not true, well, it is true. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Isaiah chapter 5, and let's just dial into verse 20. Verse 20, chapter 5, Isaiah says this. Woe. Now, stop. Woe. That's W-H-O-A. Woe. Stop. When it says woe, W-O-E, what does that mean? What does woe mean? This is bad stuff, people. Watch out. This is the deal. This is going to hurt. <laughs> That's what W-O-E means, and Revelation's got a number of woes. And not W-O-A. We, we as a nation need to woe, W-H-O-A. But woe, W-O-E, means there's trouble. Look what it says, just briefly. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That is exactly what's going on in the United States of America today. We are calling good evil, and we are calling evil good. That's a horrible place to be, and that is a result of being given over to a reprobate mind. Wow! But I still have good news. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I'm going to let you just write that down. It is that God is long-suffering to usward, that he would, that all would come to repentance. God has enough grace. He's got enough mercy. He's got enough love for anyone that seeks after him and receives him for what he's given. A brand new life, a brand new 
complete new heart. That's what we're talking about here is purity of heart. A heart that is pure. That must have blown their minds, coming back to Matthew chapter 5. That must have blown their minds. Pure in heart. Blessed are those that are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Basically, that's the only ones that will see God. Now, all of those Pharisees must have gulped and said, we're not pure in heart. We got our pots and our pans washed right. And we take care of Sabbath, the Sabbath day, and we're kind of, we don't walk too far, and we don't do too many things, and we've got a whole bunch of laws that we like that we can keep. And by the way, Joe Schmo down there, if I need to compare myself to anyone, I'm a lot better than he is. Isn't that the way it works? That external religiosity? As long as there's somebody not as good in our conception or perception, then we're okay. But that's not what purity means in this text. It literally means... We are comparing ourselves to none other than God. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a big problem. Especially considering that in Romans chapter 5, let's go there for a moment. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, it tells us a lot about what sin did. What sin accomplished. And sin's been busy. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us this, Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, Sin entered into the world. That was a bad day. And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That verse right there maybe just depicts our situation so clearly, so concisely, and so depressingly if that was the end of it. But it's not. God did something about it. In fact, if you were to write, write down Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it literally tells us that before he made anything, he had chosen us, that is, those that are believers in Christ, that Jesus Christ would pay the price before he made anything. That's love. That's not love in disguise. That's love in action. To think of, well, I'm going to just pose that question to you. Let's say that you're going to make something. You're a creator. And I'm talking out of nothing. It's hard for us to get there. I don't want you to remain infinite for very long because it will go to your head. But for just these few seconds, I want you to think you are in God's place. And you're going to make something. And it's going to be really cool. And you can't wait to make it because you want that creation to be something that magnifies you and glorifies your work and literally that top of the list, that human being, that one, that person that has going to have emotion, that's going to have feelings, that's going to be in your image is going to be able to love you. But because you know everything, you also know that this little, I was going to call him a creep, but I, I'm not going to, but that person that you made is going to sin against you. And literally now sin, got you as God cannot comprehend that. You've never tasted of sin. You don't know anything of it. What would you do? Would you start over? I would. I'd just take my Play-Doh and push her all back together and start over. But God said, no. He said, I'm not going to do that. I already know what's going to happen, but I have made a plan. I have chosen Jesus Christ, my very essence, God the Son, the personality, the second of the Trinity, to die in the place of them. And then someone said, God doesn't love us? Wow, that is so magnanimous. And here's the one, Jesus Christ, literally sitting there on that mountainside that day, teaching these people in a magnanimous way. And it's him that's literally going to die in a matter of just two or three years for them. And that's the only way they can be pure in heart. Oh, my goodness. 
What do you think the disciples thought about this after the fact, after Jesus was risen from the dead and he took off and the Holy Spirit has come to live within them? And to know of those moments when he said that, and they said, oh my word, that was so precious to know that he is literally the only way for me to have a pure heart. Wow, it's the same for us today. What a magnificent truth. It's over the top. I think of some of the questions. You know what you didn't do, Paul? You didn't tell me to talk about Nicodemus. Yeah. And you're going to say, you didn't give me a chance. Exactly. So let's go back to John chapter 3 for a moment. I want, to see what, I want you to see what people are asking. What people are asking in that day. John chapter 3. Let's go back there for a moment. John chapter 3. And let's watch now. This is a religious leader. We, we really got sidetracked a little bit. I don't know whose fault that was, but it was, anyway, in verse 1 of chapter 3 of John, it talks about a man by the name of Nicodemus. And it says that he's a ruler of the Jews or a teacher. And he's one of these Pharisees. He's, he literally would be described as part of this, um, this group that is very external. They love to do things that people see. They love to have people know that they're doing things that they see. And he's part of that. But you, you watch this now. He doesn't even get to ask the question because Jesus is dialed right into his heart and knows what he has to ask before he asks it. Isn't that cool? Watch now. Let's see if I'm right. Verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And then it goes on to verse 3, Jesus answered. Wait, did you see what Nicodemus, I did not see this till today. Did you see what Nicodemus did not say? He did not ask a question. And yet Jesus answered it. I love that. God knows what you need to know before you even know how to ask the question. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Boy, we got right into that, didn't we? Literally, Nicodemus wanted to know, you know what? I'm a Pharisee. I know all about this stuff and this legalism system that I'm all tied into. But I don't know how to get to God. How do I have eternal life? How do I, how do I get to the kingdom? That's, that was, by the way, that was a question that was repeatedly asked of these people in this day. They wanted to know how to be literally forgiven and find God. And this is a Pharisee that's asking this. Now, he didn't even ask it. Jesus wasn't going to have him torture himself for about 33 minutes more to find out how am I going to ask Jesus how to get to heaven because I'm supposed to know. Jesus went right to it. Isn't that fun how he does that? He, we, see, we, we would have had another 800 verses in John chapter 3 because a Pharisee, to be able to ask, what do I have to do to go to heaven, would really, and that's probably why it came at night. It would have been very embarrassing to show up to ask Jesus questions in the daytime, right? At least it's a possibility. But let's look at John chapter 6. Let's go f just flip over to John chapter 6 and verse 28. Actually, we need to start verse 22, get our context. I'm always a context guy. John chapter 6, verse 22. The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save that one unto his disciples were entered, that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat that his disciples were gone away. This is chapter 6, verse 23 now in John. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place where they did eat bread after that the Lord had given thanks. 
And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. Now, what had he just done? If we would have went back further, what did he just, he'd fed about a lot of people. A lot of people. He just fed them with nothing. I want to hang around that kind of guy. And they did. They were all over him. They were all there. They were plugged in and then watch. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. In other words, you're following me because I can do the bread thing. Labor not for, in fact, I wonder how many Christians there are today they are just hanging on to Jesus just in case they need something from him. Ooh. Okay, I didn't ask that question. Let's just keep going. And labor not for the meat which perisheth, verse 27, but for that meat which endureth into everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him that hath God the Father sealed. Now watch verse 28. Watch this. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? In other words, how do we get close to God? And you'll find it over and over and over and over again. These people wanted to know how to get close to God. And they got the Pharisees living amongst them. They want to know. I'm praying for a nation that we want to know how to get close to God. That's what our nation needs. We need to really want to know how to get close to God. That's what we're so far away we don't even know it that we don't know. Isn't that something? We already went through why. Uh, let's let's look at Luke chapter 10. Let's come back to Luke chapter 10. Am I a little too loud today? Very animated, but I can't, I can't help it. Uh, Luke chapter 10, let's look at verse 25. Verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. And we looked at this last week in a different context, but I want you to see again the questions that people are asking. You know, a lot of times you can find out where people are at by the questions they're asking. You've noticed that, haven't you? What questions are being asked? That tells me where that person's at, what's important. Verse 25, chapter 10, it says this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up. Isn't that amazing? They had lawyers way back then. My goodness. And tempted him. He's trying him. He's testing him. He's saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, we've looked at three different instances, and they're all concerned about wanting to be able to get to God. But did you notice in every single case, they had been... I don't know how to say this other than the Pharisees had totally infected their minds because in every single case, they wanted to do something. Yeah, and there's two types of religions, really, literally. There's the ones where man creates things to do. Works. Legalism, whatever you want to call it. But it's, it, we're working our way to God. And that would be just the same as I liken it to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have jumped the Grand Canyon? How many of you attempted Okay, those that, are, those that have are not here right now. <laughs> okay? But if you tried it, now again, I'm, I'm thinking about the sense of comparison for a moment. Okay? Now, in this group here, there would be some of you that could go further than others. You would be more athletic. You maybe had the right <laughs> Nike tennis shoes on. You maybe had the right everything on. And you would go about 10 feet further then. But the results are the same, aren't they? It's not going to work out. It's a long ways down there, baby. There's no hope, is there, literally? But that's, that's what a works program is. It's trying to accomplish something that's impossible, and the only thing you're looking at is as long as I go further than the other guy. <laughs> it's that silly, and that's exactly the best I can get in the sense of an analogy. And Jesus said, no, 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 you need to depend on me, and we will fly over it. Because with me, God sees a pure heart positionally. Isn't that awesome? 
We're going to be talking about levels of purity as well, but let's keep going. But here's this man again, some, another one asking, how do I get eternal life? world was crazy. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. One more, and then we'll move on. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. I just want you to see, these are questions people are asking in the Gospels. While Jesus is walking the earth, these are questions. Verse 18, chapter 18 of Luke. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Have you noticed there's, a, there's kind of a pattern here, isn't there? They want eternal life. They want to get close to God, and they want to do something to do it. And that's what Jesus is answering in Matthew chapter 5. And if you listened and you were there on that day, as you are today... Blessed or happier those that are pure, perfect, holy in heart. And we'll talk about heart in a moment. For they shall see God. And only they, it could be said that way, can see God. Huh. Well, it leaves me out. In fact, that whole crowd, that whole group of people, that multitude of people would have said, I guess I got to go home. I got nothing. I can't do this. That's the perfect place to start. That is where God wants us to start. That's why Jesus let her rip out of the box and unpack that bag and said, there's no way, baby, that you can get to God except you're pure in heart. Huh. That's none of us. Romans chapter 3 is pretty clear about that. No, there's not one righteous. No, not one, for we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Huh. That's like putting it in a bad situation, isn't it? But that's where he wanted them. When you talk about heart issues, Jesus always went right to the heart of the heart issues. He went right to the center, the most innermost thought processes where things are happening, and he wanted to just blow that apart. Because you can start to do some work if you get there. If you want to talk about external stuff, change a shirt, sew a button on, comb your hair, what does that do? That's appearances. But he wanted to get where the thinking thing takes place. The heart. The heart. What do you know about the heart? Well, let's talk about standards for a moment. Let's go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. As you're contemplating some of these things, it's pure of heart. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Um, comparing to the right comparable, watch what uh, God through Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. This is a little scary. Because it is written, this is from Old Testament, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, let's try another chapter and verse on that one. What do you mean, holy? I can't be holy as God is holy. And, we're and this literally, Jesus was using God as the standard to be pure in heart exactly as God is. Whoa. In fact, let's go to Matthew chapter 5, back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Just spin right back where we were. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Jesus is still speaking later on in this same sermon, this same inaugural speech, if you will. Verse 48, chapter 5, he says, But be, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Oh, this is a drag. I always had that Joe Schmo down the street that I could compare myself to, and I'm pretty good compared to Joe. He's kind of a loser. Now, hopefully there's no Joe here right now. No, there isn't. We're comparing to God. To God. Think about the sequencing of all of this. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse, again, we'll just run over one at a time. What a perfect place to start. Verse 3, to be humble. Verse 4 is speaking of mourning over our sin. Once, once you're humble and you see yourself for who you are, to mourn over that sin. Verse 5 is to be meek. 
to be meek, to literally approach God and trusting him. And then the hunger and thirst after righteousness, it sets us up to have mercy. We talked about that last week. You know, mercy, is, it, it, it's a wonderful thing, but the only time anyone needs mercy, this is just really true, the only time you need mercy is if you have a problem. If there was no sin, we wouldn't need mercy. But there is. Thank goodness that God provided us with mercy because it's, his forgiveness is based in his mercy, and his mercy is based in love. His love is so amazing, so un, unreasonable and abounding. And just, uh, there's just, I, I look at it this way. There's just a little part of his love that's in mercy because the only time that mercy is needed is if there's a problem. And then forgiveness comes from that. But God's love arched over that, and he said, I'm going to provide a way. God's love was so magnanimous that he decided before he made what he knew would fail that he would love them beyond that. That part I can't get a full picture of. It's so infinite, so outrageous, so magnificent, and I'm so glad that God decided to do it that way. Oh, my goodness. He loved us before we first loved him. We talked about approaches to religion. One, Well, two religions, that is of human accomplishment or achievement. You're going to earn your way. It's Satan's lie. It really is. You're going to use your own energy, your own power, and your own resources. And you will fail totally and completely. Or this divine accomplishment, that's where God did it in Christ. There's really only one that can get that done. Let's go to Psalm chapter 24. Hold your place. We'll be right back in Matthew. Psalm chapter 24, and let's look at verses 1 through 5. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 5. Uh, David writing, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Now just, just contemplate for a second. Uh, just think of everything that you know about the world yourself. It's all God's. Have you ever been to the mountains? I mean, in some I mean, spectacular, serene place, and you just, you just soak it in. Have you been there? Oh, you know, it's so beautiful, isn't it? And you just want to just, ah. And then you hear the creek, and you smell the pines. And then somebody said, it just happened. No, it didn't just happen. God made it for his glory and for us to enjoy and the splendor of it. All of that. And then think of everything else that he made. And it's his. Keep verse 2. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Now, that's a great question. Who's worthy to literally approach this God that made all of this? Verse 4, he that hath clean hands and a, did you catch it? A pure heart. <laughs> that's, that's who can come to God is ones with a clean hands and a pure heart. In fact, with that thought in mind, turn back to James. Just came to me. James chapter 4. Let's go there for a moment. James chapter 4. How's your Bibles working? You wearing them out? Anybody wears a Bible out here? I'll get you a new one. I want you to use your Bible. James chapter 4, and let's look at verse 8. Follows tremendously right down the same line. Does it count for a digital edition? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're going to have a lot more pages to wear out, buddy, on that one. I think you got, you're going to be a while. You're going to be a while. Yeah, you're going to be a while. But nice try. Nice try. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Watch. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Same concept as David laid out for us in Psalm chapter 24. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 59. 
Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah chapter 59. Now, here God is describing Israel. Watch how he describes the situation. Verse 1 of chapter 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. In other words, God is, God, God's hand, is, it's, it's a bit of an analogy. He's not, his hand is not short to where he can't reach you. Neither is his ear heavy. In other words, he's got a hearing problem. He can't hear you. No, that's not the problem. Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. We need a pure heart. Look at verse 12, same chapter, verse, chapter 59. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. Verse 16, and he saw that there was no man, Wondered that there was no intercessor. Isn't that exactly the problem we have? When you notice you've got a sin problem, you know what you come up, the conclusion is? There's nobody that can fix this. There's no one in this room. And some of you are pretty good people. I like to be around you. But you know what? You're not good enough to save anyone from sin. And I look across this world. There isn't one. They've all failed. We've read Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And that's what is really being described in the Old Testament. Oh, there's my glasses. Let's keep going in verse 16. He saw, God saw, there was no man, wondered that there was no intercessor. I like that word, no intercessor, a go-between. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and a clad with zeal as a cloak. He's speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, coming, and he will be that intercessor, which he was. And now that intercessor on the mount was speaking truth in the sense of how to be happy to those people. And he was literally describing that the only way for them to be pure in heart was literally something that was going to unfold in their future. For he would become the imputed righteousness that they could never earn for themselves. They would have to believe in this son of God. Wow. Hard for us to even get a hold of. Now let's talk about the heart for a moment. Let's, what is the heart? And you think of that one that pounds and that muscle that is pumping blood. Well, that is your heart muscle. But in the scriptures, the heart has a different meaning. What does heart mean? Anybody? We're going to start looking, but what do you, what do you think it is? What, is? what is it revolving around? How important is the heart in the Bible? Very, very important. In fact, let's just dive right in. Let's go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 23, and let's find out something. And this would be what Jesus would be getting to. You want to start at this deepest point. Proverbs chapter 23, did I tell you that? And verse 7. Chapter 23 of Proverbs and verse 7. Watch this. 23, 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Oh, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy. So in other words, what you're thinking is a heart issue. And predominantly, the scripture speaks of the heart as being the thinking center. It's where reason is taking place. It's where things are developed. It's where you're taking a position. Excuse me? Yeah, it is. It's, it's literally all things start. That's, that's the point of where it's at. And the mind and the heart, if you are, are together. 
Let's go to, uh, oh, here's, here's one of my favorite verses. Let's go back. You're already in Proverbs. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 4. This is one that really, really is so key. I, I, I love for young people particularly to get a hold of this. Uh, chapter 4 of Proverbs and verse 23. It says this, Keep or guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. That is magnanimous in the sense of importance. Guard your heart. Because that's where everything happens. And I can't, I, you know, as you're screening, we're going to talk about this at the very end, hopefully, if, if God takes us there. But, you know, one of the things that God gives us to be able to guard our heart and to make sure that our heart is gaining proper attention is he gave us a full set of armor. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul, that's another one of your jobs. Don't let me forget Ephesians chapter 6. The thing, just to think that God provided and protected us with what we need to be everything he wants us to be. And that, that's great. Great stuff. Now, what about emotions? What does the Bible speak of, or the Jew in particular in this day and age? What would have, where would have the Bible spoke of in the sense of if it was retaining, pertaining to emotions? That would be like the bowels of compassion. It would be your midsection. And I think about myself. You know when you have an emotional attack where somebody said something? You got the picture and it was like, whoa, that was an emotional charge. You know, I have that, that stomach thing, the butter, butterflies in the stomach kind of a thing. I remember going to music festivals and, and I played trumpet. Not very well. That's probably why I had the butterflies, right? But there was something, you remember, and you, and you were just about up. You were just about ready to go. And there, that's emotion, right? Do you have that in your stomach? Exactly. Paul, I'm not Paul. Um, Jesus is going beyond that. Because literally, your thinking thing, your mind and your heart are seen as, as, as combination, in other words, in the Bible. That's where it all begins. And then after what you think, what you're deciding to think, that moves into your will. This is how I'm going to exercise what I believe. That's your will. And then the will is where the emotions come out of. And that's how it works. And that's why Jesus wants to get to the innermost part of who you are. He wants you to be pure at the most inside level. He wants you to be so focused on what's the most important. Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. Let, we're going to start. Where do I have you? Let's just stop, start there for a minute. You're in Proverbs? Proverbs, is that where you're at? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to Genesis then. Let's go all the way back, and we're going to kind of work our way through Genesis chapter 6. And watch this. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. This is a bad moment. Things are going crazy because of what happened in Adam and Eve's life. And now watch verse 5, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And actually, verse 6, God, for a moment, is probably sorry that he continued on with the plan. They were so out of sorts, they were thinking only about evil things all of the time. There was only one man that literally had to start all over with, and his name was Noah. Think of that moment in time. <clears throat> to think of it continually seeking evil. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. That'll be on page 1115 for you, those that are wearing this version. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says this. The heart 
is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Wow. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Actually, no. Did you read out of... We, we sang a song, didn't we? Psalm 51. Created me a clean heart. Let's go there. Uh, so, Psalm chapter 51. Uh, David penned these words. After he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan pointed him out, and he is coming clean before God. Let's watch this. In chapter 51, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God. Did you see what I... Remember what I said about mercy? The only time you need mercy is when you got a problem. I need a lot of mercy. <laughs> it says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and the hidden part. Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Watch verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Isn't that exactly the way it would, would be? That, that's how purification takes place, to cry out to God. Uh, Psalm chapter 73. Let's just turn over there. Psalm 73. You're going to have your notes full day. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, even as such as are of a clean heart. God loves clean hearts. Matthew chapter 15. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. Matthew 15, verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. You could write down your notes, Mark chapter 7, verse 14. It says the same thing, but he was teaching the fact that it isn't what you take in or what you eat that defiles you. And again, who would it be talking to? Very diet-specific Jews that really felt that it was very strict in how they... Jesus said, no, it's what comes from within that defiles you, out of the heart. Out of the heart. Let One more. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll keep moving. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6. Ephesians 6, 6. Not with eye service as men-pleasers... But as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. From the heart. God is very interested in the heart. You remember when uh, David was selected and uh, Saul had actually, well, let's just say he wasn't following after God. Let's, let's turn there. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, and it's such a sad story because literally it tells us in another passage that God gave Saul a new heart when he selected him as king. And then he continued to do things that did not help him purify. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Watch this now. This is, this is really, really key. Oh, I need to set this up though, don't I? We've got to get context. So I'll, I'll do this for just a second. Okay. 
We've got a, we've got a family meeting. And Samuel's got a job. Samuel's been told by, by God, he said, I want, I want a new king. Saul is not a man after my own heart. I, I, I need a king. I need somebody to lead my people that has a heart after mine. So Samuel says, where, where do you want me to go? He says, well, just go down there. And there's a guy by the name of Jesse. And Jesse's got a family of boys. And I'm going to pick my new, my new king out of that group, out of that family. There's someone there that's going to be my king, and he's going to be a man after my own heart. And there goes Samuel. Oh, one thing I forgot to tell you. Oftentimes when you're doing God's work, there's a little bit of opposition, or it could be. Remember, like I said last week, Nathan, and he's, his job is to tell, to tell, tell David. This, now, this is going way forward into the, into the journey of kings, kingship, but literally David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had killed her husband. He'd been tied up in lies and murder and deception to an ultimate degree, but he's king. Keep that in mind. David is king. And now Nathan, the prophet, has been told by God to go fix the problem and tell David that he sinned against God. Boy, that sounds easy. I need the, that was easy button, right? But Nathan fought through it, offered it to God, and tells a little story, which I did last week. And he basically had a really long finger. I know Nathan had a really long finger. And he pointed at David, and he said, you were that man. And then David wrote chapter 51 of Psalms that really speaks to us today in the sense of purifying our hearts. Get it right with God. Pour it out before God. And Samuel's decision, Samuel's job was to look for a new king. He says to God in another place, he says, um, what do you think Saul's going to say about that? Pray tell. But he did what God wanted him to do. That's the same for us today. We live in a world that really doesn't like right anymore. Have you noticed? But it's always the right time to do the right thing. Always. And Samuel did the right thing at the right time. And he chose to go out to Jesse's. And we've already got this figured out because the oldest son, Eliab, is going to be, he's going to be the home run hitter. He's the guy that's going to be chosen because he looks good and he's got it. Samuel's ready to just dunk him in oil, right? And God said, that's not my pick because I look on the heart. In fact, let's read that in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. It came to pass, verse 6, that they were there. He looked upon Eliab, the oldest son, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. That's what Samuel said. The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not in his countenance as outside on the height of his statue, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh where? On the heart. And you know the story. Prance, prance, prance. Here comes number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. And we're out of sons. And Samuel says, you got anybody else? Well, what do you want? I got six pretty good looking guys here. I mean, these are my son. He's not here. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hmm. Who am I missing? Somebody's gone. Who is it? Oh, David. He's the runt. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And Samuel said, go get him. And you know what happened? Here he comes. <laughs> And I, you just know he's out of breath, right? Because they told, hurry up, hurry up, Samuel, the prophet's here, and he needs you to come. And, you know, and he, and he's the one. <laughs> David's the most surprised of anybody. And you know what's really cool? This is that humble heart thing again. What have you done if you'd have been just anointed the king of Israel? I'd have went down to the local, throne, or the local uh, crown shop. I'd have started trying on crowns. 
I'd want to get one that I could expand because likely my head would expand once I get into that position, right? What did David do? It tells us he went back to the sheep. Isn't that, per isn't that beautiful? That's exactly where God will work the, the highest is when you are the lowest, when you're willing to take, when, you, when you're willing to be right where God wants you to be, and that's humble right at his feet. Isn't that beautiful? That's why he wants a pure heart. He wants a pure heart. All right, our time is flying by, which doesn't ever happen here. Pure. That word pure. There's a word that we get from it, catharsis, which would mean a cleansing, a soul cleansing. You probably in psychology, a catharsis, to be cleansed from filth, quite honestly, to be free of sin, to be free of iniquity. If you will, a spiritual integrity. You remember what we read about in the sense of clean heart, hands and, a, and purify your hearts in James chapter 4? You double-minded? That's one of the things that's very hard. Uh, if, in other words, if you just become... Have you heard the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat? Let's talk about that for a second. See, it's easy to be a thermometer. In other words, the thermometer registers what the temperature is in the room. Now, if I become just like everybody else who was ever a company I'm in, then I'm a thermometer. But if your heart is pure, then you're a thermostat. And that is you go over to the wall and you turn it up or down and you become the instigator of what happens in the room. Not the follower of what happens in the room, but the instigator of what's in the room. You're single-minded. Your heart is single-minded, not double-minded. In fact, one of the James just talks over and over, don't be double-minded. Don't have... You know, wherever you're at, a split personality, if you will. Integrity, sp spiritual integrity. To be one-minded, to be single-minded. That's what he's speaking of here. To be pure. Motives determine life direction. Let's talk about purity now in the sense of the kinds. You said, what do you mean kinds? Well, I'm here to tell you that there are some kinds of purity that you will never experience. The first kind is what we would call primitive or what I call perfect purity. Perfect purity. Now, that is one that is encased and encompassed only by God himself. That's who God is. When you say, I am holy, he has been holy and perfectly pure from all eternity past and all eternity forward. That is his and his alone. I can't even describe it other than to say it's perfect. And you have to take my word for it. The second one is what we call created purity. When God created things, you know what? He made Adam and Eve pure. Those angels were made pure. And we don't know what that feels like. We don't know what that tastes like. We have no idea. They do. That would have been a day that I cannot, you know, have you ever had a bad day? Can you imagine that day getting up? Same as always. No, they don't even stretch because they're not sore, right? I mean, you'd be perfect. They're walking in the garden with God in the afternoon at 4 o'clock. Oh, let's go walk with God. Oh, they didn't have time. They had, time was on their side. I don't even, can you imagine not having to follow the clock? You just walk with God in the afternoon when it feels good? Do you see where I'm going? It was so perfect, I can't even describe it for you. And on that very same day, they chose to disobey God. Oh, the next morning, what do you think that felt like? Oh, my goodness. Sin had entered our world. We had fallen apart. We had totally, I, I don't think they could even catch it yet. What would that be like? What would that be like? So we have perfect purity. We have created purity. 
And then we have one that's called ultimate purity, which if you're in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him, that day is coming. That ultimate day when you literally be at his feet looking in our Savior's eyes and God, you're going to see him because that's when your heart, when you, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, purity becomes yours, which is actually the fourth one, which is positional purity. Let me step back for just a second. Let's talk about ultimate purity. To be in the presence of God, the one that designed and, and, and made the perfect plan for you to come to him for eternity, to be in heaven forever and ever and ever, and beyond that, that is the ultimate in purity, to be there with him. I can't wait. I cannot wait to literally just come right to my Savior. I want to hug him. I want to wrap my arms around him. I want to thank him forever for what he did for me. In fact, this is a little bit ahead of but the, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Oh, I love this. 1 John chapter 3, and let's look at verse 2. 1 John 3. John, what a, what a writer, what a disciple, the one that Jesus described as the disciple I loved. 1 John chapter 3, verse, let's watch verse 1. Let's start there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. And that's, that's the one thing. I, I'm going to be a little bit off track for just a second, but you'll reel me back, right back in. Think of this for just a second. You know, today, as we look around our world, and, and, and people are saying to de defund police, and to ride, and to kill, and to, to maim, and to, to make just a total place of anarchy, I cannot grasp that. I can't get it. And you know why? Because those aren't his. And I feel really sorry for them that they've missed it. But what he said is, behold what manner of love that he has literally made us, those that are in Christ, to be sons of God. You see, it's not a flesh and blood thing. It's not. It's a spiritual thing. Those people that are engaged in, in all of this debauchery and the looting and all of the things of destruction, they don't even know what they're doing. They literally don't even know what they're doing. That's why Stephen is he's, here. That's, chapter 7 is such a magnificent testimony of a man that's filled with the Holy Ghost, literally filled, it's what it says, filled with the Holy Ghost, and, and they stone him to death. And he says, this is the love that is shed abroad in his heart because of the Holy Spirit living within him, is literally this, do not blame them. Do not place this against them. <laughs> it was beyond the pain and the agony of his very death that he was able to say, they don't even know what they're doing. Jesus Christ said the same thing as he's being nailed to a cross. The agony in which he was literally being subjected to, and he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And those last three words are my favorite. It's the end of the beginning. It is finished. Sin's penalty, its power has been destroyed. It's been busted. It's been broken. Satan no longer can wield that as a tool, as a weapon because he paid the price. Oh, my goodness. And that's what God decided to do before he made us. Now, we only got through three purities, didn't we? 
So let's review. We have the perfect or primitive from the very beginning of purity. That's God's and God's only. The second one is created purity. That Adam and Eve and the angels would have only known of that prior to the fall. And then thirdly, ultimate. That's a day that we can look forward to if we're in Jesus Christ. Fourthly is one we call positional purity. This is the one that you're in right now. If you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you believe that His blood was satisfactory for your sin, for your heart that needs to be made pure, that needs to be cleansed, and you accept His gift for you and have imputed, that is what I call an account transfer. I love account transfers that I got from God because now think of this. If we just drew a line through this board, and we split it down the middle. And this is Larry. And the only thing I got in my ledger is sin. That's the only thing I got. I came with it. I own it. And I can't trade it. Sin. Now, the other side of it is Jesus. And the scripture tells us about this. And the only thing he's got on his side of the ledger is righteousness. Righteousness. I've been accused of, I can't write straight across the board. It always kind of slopes, so I'm really working hard at that, Larry. Is it better? Am I getting better? I'm getting better. Okay, well, here we go. Let's get back to the story. So we have, two, we, have, we have me on this side on the left, and I have Jesus on the right. And this is literally what happened when Jesus Christ died. And when I trust his sacrifice, when I trust him and his blood to do the work, something amazing happens. Let's, in fact, let's read it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. I hope I'm right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This is magnanimous in what it's accomplishing. 2 Corinthians, I'll find it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Let's read it. Whoops, I'm in first. I'll be there. I'll be there. Stay with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, that's God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. <gasps> this is fabulous. Hey, you like those uh, when you get from the Napa store? I don't know why I picked that one right now, but the Napa store in town. And, and I like the ones that say in the bottom, paid in full. I don't owe him anything. By the way, that never happens. <laughs> we always owe him something because always something's breaking down, right? But literally, not only is it paid in full, and my sin is literally washed away. In fact, John, remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus, for the first time, he sees him at a distance. He says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And when I trust Christ, my sin disappears and I'm still, man, that's great. No, it's not even as much as you can possibly imagine. What happens is Jesus' righteousness is imputed or transferred to my account. And now when God looks at me, positionally, he sees my heart as being pure because he sees Jesus' blood as paying the price. And he took my sin. Is your picture of Jesus getting bigger? It needs to. It needs to. What a fabulous transfer. What a fabulous transfer. Let's look at another uh, verse. Uh, let's go to Galatians. Actually, where did I leave you? Second Corinthians? Let's go to Romans chapter 5 for a second. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. One of my favorite chapters. 
We're going to just read the first, uh, we're going to read the first like 10 verses, okay? Stay with me now. Watch. Therefore, being justified. That's another, that's a legal term. It's being justified by faith. Now, see, when God sees me now, after I've trusted Christ, he declares me not guilty. I'm not guilty anymore. The price has been paid. By whom? By Jesus Christ. It's paid in full, and he sees Jesus' righteousness, positional purity in my life. Ah, oh, that's a win-win. Let's keep going. We get, have peace with God. Now, that's how you have peace with God, is when you trust Jesus as your Savior. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Watch, why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. You see, when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit has a new home in your heart, in your life. Isn't that awesome? Now watch verse 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, Larry wasn't even smart. I'm not, 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 not that Larry. This Larry up here. I'm talking about this Larry. This is this Larry Melhoff, okay? Larry wasn't even smart enough to know that I need Jesus to die for me. It was God's plan. I didn't even know I was in enough trouble to know that. But God did it anyway. And he laid it out there, the gospel, the good news, saying that Christ died for me. And he did it before I loved him. And my heart is pure positionally. Now, there's one more purity level, and this is the one that's tough. This is a hard one. This is the one that just tears us up. Let's find it in 2 Corinthians and chapter 7 and verse 1. This is what literally in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Having therefore, are you all there? 2 Corinthians 7 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now that requires work. It does. It's, there's not an easy road. If, if, if you're living and you've trusted Christ as Savior, it's not like, whew, we have no more problem with sin. It's all good now. No, no. It's a day-by-day, day, a moment-by-moment moment walk, isn't it? And we fall down. And we fall down, and we fall down, and we fall down again and again and again. And that's called practical purity. This gap between when you've trusted Christ and ult- where the ultimate... Uh, purity is, that period of time, some, it, it, who knows, it could be one day to number of years. And we just keep going. We just keep picking up. And we know that God is continually working on us. That he has not given up on us. That he continues to work and to refine and to... But you know what? There's some really good things. When you fall, what is the first thing that Satan tells you? First of all, he's telling you, And you do it, you loser. Everybody knows you're a sinner. You are a creep and God hates you. See, he goes from one side to the other. This is how God views it. If you're in him, 1 John chapter 1. Let's go there. 1 John chapter 1. 
1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. When we fail, which it will happen, if we confess our sins, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is. That's another gift from him. Literally, when we fail, when we fall down and we come to him and we say, oh, Lord Jesus, I failed. I lost it. I was tempted. I lusted. And I failed. I'm so sorry. I confess of that sin. And confess literally means to turn around. Repentance is to turn around and go the other way. Sometimes that's not as easy. Have you ever, have you ever went this way and you're still looking backwards? <laughs> it happens, doesn't it? But you know what? He's ready. He's able to pick you up. And guess what it just said? That fellowship that has been broken is restored. And you know what, we're, what we, typically happens to us is we take too much time before we confess. It'll get better by itself. Oh, it wasn't that bad a deal. And that's, again, what we tell our conscience. We're going back where we started in this. Sometimes what we tell ourselves are lies. Our world is so full of lies right now, it's amazing. Everywhere there's just bombarded with lies and falsehoods. And what you take in, if you're not guarding your heart, Romans chapter 4, verse 23, that becomes part of what we believe. That's part of our heart. It becomes impure. And you know what happens when our heart is impure? This is what it looks like. All of a sudden, God is it's kind of fuzzy. Have you ever seen a foggy day? Have you ever driven on a highway in a foggy day? And you really don't, yeah, it's awful. You really don't know what's ahead of you. That's what literally happens to us when we continue to keep an impure thoughts, impure heart, those things that actually literally make God foggy to us. He becomes fuzzy. And he's fading out of sight. And the only way you can get it done. And it's, thankfully, God doesn't tell us everything that's wrong with us right away. Oh, I would be depressed, right? He just takes them one at a time. And he wants us to just, and you know what? It's amazing how we will keep burning on that one at a time thing. If you have that one that you really don't want to get rid of, and you just keep, he'll keep working on it. He'll keep pushing that button. And when you come to him and you confess, he will forgive you reinstill that fellowship and all of a sudden it's no longer foggy it's beautiful you will see him for who he is and not only do you see god in the future where we talk about ultimate glory ultimate purity literally what happens is when you're even practical purity here when you clean the slate when you see you see god more clearly that second and the more purity you want because remember what we said in in the romans chapter 8 verse 28 for all things work together for good to those that love God. And how do you love God? You love the things He loves and you hate the things He hates. You begin to hate sin. You begin to hate those things that God hates. And you love the things He loves. And you know what happens? Your heart becomes more pure. And pretty soon you see Him clear. And the clearer He becomes, the more you want to be more pure. And the more you're pure, it's clean. I can't even talk about it. It's so exciting. <laughs> but God knows what I mean. I hope you do. Literally, God is on your side. He's working for you. But let's something that, that uh, I would also like to look at quickly is let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to have to go quick. Ephesians chapter 6. And this is kind of like as the, the book of Ephesians is so powerful. It's so fired up because really, literally, because we're in Jesus Christ, we have an enormous amount of privileges and blessings. But then he gets to the very end and he says this. Listen to this. Finally, my brethren, and they're kind of thinking in this letter, Oh, man, he's loaded us. He's just overwhelmed us with his stuff. And he finally says, finally, my brethren, 
Watch now. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not in your might, in his might. Now watch verse 11. Put on half the armor of God. Oh, that's what we do, isn't it? We, I'll just put on the breastplate today. I don't need the other stuff. <clears throat> Never take your enemy lightly. He knows exactly where your most vulnerable place is. And there are usually two of them. The one that you don't think you're vulnerable against, and oh, I'm pretty strong there, watch out, pride cometh before the fall. And the other one is, is the one that you know is your weakness, but you don't take preventative strategies to make sure that you're watching out for where he is going to snag you. That's another thing. Um, your strategies for avoiding impurities. That's, that's very, very important. But let's keep going here. Let's keep, let's keep moving. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. Now, verse 12 is absolutely real in America today. You may see a lot of men and women with names that literally it's an evil spirit that is working on their behalf. It is a... I'm just going to say, our world right now is as divided in evil versus good as I have ever witnessed. And that's not going to change. Verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Oh, there it is. Without truth, you have nothing. And I meant that to be loud. It's truth that holds it all together. And that's what's happened to our nation. That's what happened to our world. We no longer adhere to truth. We don't think there is any. The world's pot. How many people are in this place today? You can have that many kinds of truth. Oh, my word. That's a mess. Of course it is. Let's keep going. I'm getting hung up, aren't I? And having on the breastplate of righteousness, there it is, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You see, the, the enemy of faith is fear. And our world today is so full of fear, and the only way to conquer and to vanquish fear is literally through the faith of Jesus Christ. Faith conquers fear. Where there's faith, there is no fear. Where there's fear, there is no faith. They cannot commingle. And that is a blessing that we have from God. He's given it to us. Put it on. And your feet shod with the preparation of the... I'm sorry. Uh, take, above all, taking the faith, shield of faith, wherewith you should be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation. That's what protects your mind. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Wow. Are you guys overwhelmed yet? Three things. I think I want to just, we're just, we're just going to close here with three things. How can my heart be made pure? That's a question we should have. How can my heart be made pure? Let's go to Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9. This is a key place to start. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9. And this is literally what Jesus was saying on the mountain, by the way he said it. Who can say, verse 9, chapter 20, right over the Proverbs, who can say, I have made my heart clean, and I am pure from my sin? Who can say that? Nobody. 
Nobody. In fact, that was the whole thing that Jesus was trying to say. The pure in heart shall see God. You know why he said that? Because no one could see God if it was up to them. And if you're here thinking that you can purify your own heart, missed it, missed it, missed it. Now, let's go to Acts chapter 15. Here we go. Acts chapter 15. We're getting close to the end, too. Those of you who are keeping track. Acts chapter 15, verse 9. Whoops. What did I do wrong here now? Oh, yeah, there it is. There it is. I went to the wrong verse. Okay, there we go. Verse 8. And God, which knoweth the hearts, imagine that, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did not, watch now, and put no difference between us and them. Watch. Purifying their hearts by faith. Purifying their hearts by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, if we were going to, I'm going to just write down 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, where it talks about if, he, if you are faithful, to, if you confess your sins, he is faithful to forgive them. One of the things that you are to have faith in is the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Purifying your hearts by faith. Let's go to John chapter 15. And this is, I think we'll close here. Won't guarantee it, but we're getting close. John chapter 15. John chapter 15 and verse 3. Here we go. John 15, 3. We'll start at verse 1. Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, watch verse 3. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. You want to get clean? You want a pure heart? You just wash in the word. You wash in the word and pray. I tell you what, that's one thing that's happened over the last couple of years to me is a moment, even a part of a day, where I'm not speaking to God. And I mean, I'm talking, I'm just talking to him. Sometimes if you're around me and I start talking, I'm talking to God. I want to know what he wants me to do. Because that's the only place I'm going to be happy is where he wants me to be and to be doing. All the time I want to just, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to be? How should I do it? And then sometimes on those stuff like it's really hard, run that by me again. <laughs> but at least I'm asking, right? Praying. Wash yourself in the word. Purify your hearts by faith. And be sure and don't try to do it on your own. Don't do it on your own. I think I'm going to stop right there. Do you see how important a pure heart is? amazingly important and it's amazing how the crescendo of how jesus has spoken he talked about humility then mourning over our sin being sorrowful for the very thing that hurts god and then moving into meekness and when we're meek we're literally trusting in god you know it's power under control but literally it means this i'm okay with where i'm at because i can trust god with my next moment what a great place to be. And then to thirst after righteousness, to hunger and thirst. And I'm not talking about just a little bit. I'm talking about literally starving for righteousness and thirsting after it. And then mercy becomes yours because you've tasted mercy. And then literally, as we've spoken of today, having a pure heart. For out of a pure heart, we see God more clearly. And I want you, he wants you to see him clearer every single second. He loves you. Let's pray.
Father God, what a magnificent message that Jesus gave to those people on that day. And it was radically different. It was radically, it was just out of this world, considering where the religious leaders had been, I'm going to just say, giving their own sense of truth application and what they felt was important and being happy and being right with God. And, and yet, Father, Jesus laid it out very clearly, concisely, that the only way to be happy, the only way to find God, the only way to be in His presence, the only way literally to get to the kingdom is to do it God's way. And God is an inside job God. He starts on the inside where all of the thinking and all of the decisions are being made. You've got to clean that up first. And Father, as impossible as that statement would have been, as Jesus uttered it, blessed are the pure in heart, for they, and only they, will see God. As impossible that sounded, which is exactly what would have been your intent, Father, today, if there's someone that does not know Jesus Christ personally, that right now within the sound of my voice, that literally all they have to do is to say, I trust and believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ's blood for my sin. I believe that the imputation, Father, that you designed, that is the trading, the account change of Jesus' righteousness for my sin. And I trust him for it. I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead to signify and to solidify once and for all that the sin problem was taken care of. And if you've acknowledged, if you've prayed those prayers, that prayer in your heart, then you have become a new person. You are brand new. You are a child of God. And Father, I would pray for anyone that has just make, made that decision that literally you would speak to them from the Holy Spirit that now lives within them to immerse themselves in the Word and to begin speaking and talking with you on intimates and a relational level. Father, for those of us that have made that decision, the practical purity, the fact of us day by day, that walk that sometimes is so monotonous and yet when we choose to moment by moment trust you and to be completely enveloped in your grace, that, Father, then our purity is because of you, your presence, your strength, and in my weakness, your strength is sufficient for me. Father, may we take those words seriously and may we yield and succumb our wills to yours. Father, this week there will probably be many miles that will separate this group of people from one another. And yet, Father, on a life journey that you're in control of, I ask that you'd use us in ways that are good for us and bring glory to yourself. Father, I pray for our world as it seems so out of control. Father, as the, Jewish, as the Jews listened to Jesus on that day, they were asking really literally the right questions. Father, our world isn't even asking the right questions today. May you grip their hearts, Father, through the Holy Spirit who lives within us and lives in this world and is a caller of men and women. I would ask that the gospel would be made clear and concise. 
that your grace, your gift to mankind is fully and completely known abroad and across this world. Father, may men and women succumb to Jesus this week. May they open their hearts. May they see their need for a Savior. Because, Father, it is that you want all to come to repentance and to come to yourself. As John said those magnanimous words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that same Jesus is alive and well, sitting at the right hand of God, an advocate for us, a defense lawyer, if you will. He's defending us because God sees Jesus' sacrifice in us. Father, there's not enough thanksgiving for the rest of eternity for what you accomplished through Jesus. We thank you, though, anyway. We praise your name. We lift it up. Honor it. Praise it. Father, now, as we close, we're going to ask you to, above all else, conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.